0: So this uh, semester so far, we've been going through the book of Isaiah and uh, week one, we talked about Isaiah chapter one and true and false worship. And then last week we had Jay bringing the word on Isaiah chapters two through five. And he talked about everything we need for a life of godliness. And what does it look like to do that? And this week we are going to focus on Isaiah chapter six, Isaiah chapter six. And, um, obviously, if you've got your scripture notebooks, you can read the scriptures in there. We're going to flip to a couple other passages of scripture throughout the night, but primarily we'll be in Isaiah chapter 6. And the way I want to start tonight is actually with some table talk discussion. So we're going we're to get a, a moment of table talk, and then we'll get some answers from you all, and then we'll dive in. And here's the question that I want you to talk about at your tables. What is a, is a significant event in your life or in the world that serves as a marker in time for you? What is a significant event in your life or the world that serves as a marker in time for you? And let me give you a couple examples so you know what I mean. For me, one of those significant markers would be COVID, that pandemic. I mean, we will forever look back. I mean, we even refer to the world sometimes as pre and post COVID um, because the years kind of run together, Twenty, you know, 2020, 2021, you know, Uh, In some countries, it probably still feels like it's going on. And yet for us, I may not look back and remember the year when I'm 90, if the Lord lets me live that long, but I will remember COVID as a time period. It's a marker in history. For me, the other one would be my wedding day, January 8th, 2022, because for me, everything changes after that moment. So that's a significant marker in time in my life. So think about in your life, whether it's kind of in general world history or just your life in particular, What are some significant events that have served as markers of time for you? Talk about that at your tables for just a few moments. Make sure you know everyone's name. We'll get some answers and then we will dive into Isaiah chapter six. I think if we were to look back at our own lives, we would be reminded that it's not just dates that matter, um, but that oftentimes we remember significant points in history by the events that happen or by names that are associated with it. Um, And again, this. This doesn't just apply in history, it applies to us now. And more than likely, just to use kind of a contemporary example that probably in a few hundred years will still be talked about in addition to something like COVID, a contemporary example of a significant event that will mark um, a moment in history would be the passing of Queen Elizabeth II. So she passes away last year, and I'm not just bringing her up because I'm a big fan of the Crown or because I like British history or anything, although those things are true, but it really is and even historians have already started talking about it this way of her passing is the end of a significant era of world history there's just no way around it queen elizabeth ii was queen of the united kingdom and other commonwealth realms from february 6th 1952 until her death in 2022 she was the queen regent of 32 sovereign states during her lifetime and was the head of state of 15 realms at the time of her death Her reign of 70 years and 214 days was the longest of any British monarch and the longest verified reign of any female monarch in history. She is one of the most significant leaders, for sure, of the last 100 years, and in many ways, of history. And through mass media, she has become a common part of the lives of billions and billions of people. So again, her passing marks this significant end of an era in history, and more than likely in in history books, you're going to be studying uh, with your kids the the passing of Queen Elizabeth as the end of an era, um, that you would just see as a section header in a textbook. It is that significant. Um, Again, we may come to remember 2022 is in part the year that Queen Elizabeth died. And this principle of names or significant events marking out history applies to Scripture as well. We see clearly in our passage tonight, if you were to look with me at verse 1, it does not start out as in the year 740 B.C. It doesn't start out that way. It starts out by saying in the year that King Uzziah died. That is a significant event that is marking time for the people of God. And I think in order for us to grasp the significance of our passage and the significance of what Isaiah is saying, we actually have to look at the life of King Uzziah. And so, we're going to take a moment before we dive into Isaiah chapter six. I want us to turn to Second Chronicles 26. Second Chronicles 26. And I would imagine that for some of you, this is not a typical part of the Bible that you are turning to all the time, but it marks out some significant history in the Scriptures. So 2 Chronicles chapter 26, and we're going to read through several verses here, um, a couple chunks of passages. And we're going to look at a picture of King Uzziah's life so we understand what Isaiah is talking about here in just a moment. So starting in verse 1, 2 Chronicles chapter 26 says this, All the people of Judah took Uzziah, who was 16 years old, and made him king in place of his father Amaziah. And after Amaziah the king rested with his ancestors, Uzziah built Eloth and restored it to Judah. Uzziah was 16 years old when he became king, and he reigned 52 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Jehokalah, and she was from Jerusalem. She did what was right in the Lord's, he did what was right in the Lord's sight, just as his father Amaziah had done. He sought God throughout the lifetime of Zechariah, the teacher of the fear of God. During the time he sought the Lord, God gave him success. Now, fast forward with me to, to verse 16, just a few verses later, same chapter. 2 Chronicles 26, picking up in verse 16, says this, talking about King Uzziah. But when he became strong, he grew arrogant, and it led to his own destruction. He acted unfaithfully against the Lord his God by going into the Lord's sanctuary to burn incense on the altar. Quick pause. At this time, kings are not allowed to act as priests. So only priests were allowed to burn incense at the altar in this way. There were distinct roles between kings and priests and prophets. So Uzziah is breaking a very important law of God by you know, kind of melding together these two roles. That's the context. The priest, Azariah, along with 80 brave priests of the Lord, went in after him. They took their stand against King Uzziah and said, Uzziah, you have no right to offer incense to the Lord. Only the consecrated priests, the descendants of Aaron, have the right to offer incense. Leave the sanctuary, for you have acted unfaithfully. You will not receive honor from the Lord God. Uzziah, with a fire pan in his hand to offer incense, was enraged. But when he became enraged with the priests, in the presence of the priests in the Lord's temple beside the altar of incense, a skin disease broke out on his forehead. Then Azariah, the chief priest, and all the priests turned to him and saw that he was diseased in his forehead, and they rushed him out of there. He himself also hurried to get out because the Lord had afflicted him. So King Uzziah was diseased to the time of his death. He lived in quarantine with a serious skin disease and was excluded from access to the Lord's temple while his son Jotham was over the king's household, governing the people of the land. Now, the prophet Isaiah, son of Amoz, wrote about the rest of the events of Uzziah's reign from the beginning to the end. So... You see, King Uzziah, I mean, reigns for 52 years at a time when life expectancy, you know, was was not always the greatest, especially for political leaders. If you've ever studied the history of Rome, I mean, it is just like those guys can't hardly last for a few months sometimes. They're getting picked off so quickly because of just this battle for power. And yet Uzziah reigns for 52 years. He he starts as a young man. And uh, when he's following the Lord well and submitting to the Lord, God prospers him. But then what happens, he gets arrogant as he gets stronger, and he begins to break God's law. Even if he thought he was doing a good thing, he's breaking God's law. And therefore, the king of the land, the most powerful in the land, is punished. He gets a skin disease. He is basically forced into exile and quarantine, and he dies. And that's kind of the context that Isaiah has going on. So here's what we're going to do now. We are going to flip to Isaiah chapter 6, and we're going to now try to get a better grasp of what Isaiah is saying here. Isaiah chapter 6, starting in verse 1. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord, seated on a high and lofty throne, and with the hem of his robe filled the temple. Seraphim were standing above him, and they each had six wings. With two they covered their faces, with two they covered their feet, with two they flew. And one called to the other, "'Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of armies. His glory fills the whole earth.' The foundations of the doorways shook at the sound of their voices, and the temple was filled with smoke. Then I said, "'Woe is me, for I am ruined.' Because I'm a man of unclean lips, and I live amongst the people of unclean lips, and because my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of armies. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, and in his hand was a glowing coal that he had taken from the altar with tongs. He touched my mouth with it, and he said, Now that this has touched your lips, your iniquity is removed. Your sin is atoned for. Then I heard the voice of the Lord asking, Who will I send? Who will go for us? And I said, Here I am, send me. So do you see the significance of King Uzziah's death here? It's not just a marker in time, but Isaiah is drawing this striking contrast. There is a great king of the land who is dead, and yet Isaiah is saying there's a greater king that he is seeing. In a real sense, you could translate the first verse as, In the year King Uzziah died, I saw the king a.k.a. the real king, the one that is living, the one that does not die. He's drawing a distinction between some of the greatest earthly powers. They are nothing compared to our God. They will go back to the dust from which they were formed, and yet we have a living God. I mean, King Uzziah is small potatoes compared to what Isaiah is seeing. And what Isaiah witnesses is not just the glory of an earthly king, as as amazing as that might be, He is seeing the infinite, holy God of the universe. And he is not alone in recognizing this greatness. You have something called the seraphim, which the best that we can assume is some kind of angel. But to our knowledge, this is the only time seraphim shows up in Scripture. And it, it is—it's not like a, an English word that's translated from the Hebrew. It's literally just transliterated, which means we don't even exactly know what they are. They're they're so incredible and vast. So all we do is we just take the Hebrew and we just make it pronounceable in English. That's all that's happening here. There is so much mystery surrounding the seraphim that in reality, they are seraph or seraphim in Hebrew represents like fire and burning and radiance. So, more than likely, you were talking about these like cosmic beings that if we saw them, we would be tempted to worship. And they are so great and vast. And I mean, their voices are so large, they're shaking the pillars and the foundations of the universe. And yet, they themselves will not even look upon God. They cannot even look upon God because He is so great so holy, so vast, that even these cosmic creatures that we would be tempted to worship, as great as they are, are nothing compared to God. We are talking about something in God that is bigger than we could ever imagine. And I think we would all, if we're honest, of course we would say intellectually, yes, God is big, he's great, I know that. But I don't think we really do. You can acknowledge something as vast and big in theory, but it is a whole other thing to experience it. I'm sure when someone heard about an elephant for the first time but had never seen one, all they could see was like chicken and little farm animals, the first time they saw an elephant, they were like, oh my gosh. That's nothing compared to what it would be like to actually encounter the living and holy God. Again, these seraphim are not like these little Hallmark card Valentine's Day Cupid angels that are flying around. I mean, these things are shaking the pillars of the universe. And they are recognizing that God is greater than we could ever possibly imagine. The distance between us and God is infinite. And God is not just a bigger version of us. He is a whole different kind of being altogether. He is greater than we could ever possibly fathom. He is infinite. He is beyond all imagination. And if we are not careful, we domesticate him in our worship. We put him in a box. We, we, we say general and vague things about him, and yet we don't actually understand his vastness. How often on a daily basis do we forget that God rules and reigns and has decreed all things? He's sovereign over all things. There's no such thing as a coincidence. Every single moment... Of life has been ordained and worked out by God down to a molecular level that we can't even comprehend he created everything even the very trees of the universe the even the trees of the forest and, and the rivers and all they will clap their hands and they will shout for God all of creation proclaims his glory and we are talking about something that is so much greater we cannot even fathom it and of all the words that the angels could use, the seraphim could use to describe God, they focus on one word, holy. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of armies. And when they use that word three times, that is the equivalent for us of like all caps, underline, italics, exclamation points. It's their way of emphasizing. And in many ways, it's like this exponential kind of form of reverence. It's like they're saying holy and then it gets louder, holy and holy. I mean, it just keeps on going up and up and up. God's holiness sets him apart from everything else in the universe. And the angels recognize this, the seraphim recognizes this, Isaiah recognizes this. But if we're honest, I'm not sure how many of us actually understand what holiness means it's a word that's very churchy we use it all the time but I want us to define it so that we understand what holiness truly means because holiness is a major theme of the book of Isaiah comes up more than in Isaiah than any Old Testament book so if we were going to define holiness um, we would notice that in scripture it's used to refer to a number of different objects but obviously in God we see the essence of holiness And I think there are three dimensions to the definition of holiness. Three dimensions. Dimension number one is that holiness means that there's a sense of otherness. It's set apart. So if something is holy, um, and I I would say this is the most familiar dimension, it means that it is set apart. Um, This makes some sense as the Bible seems to talk about holiness in this way. 2 Timothy 2.21 says, Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel for honorable use, set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. This idea of otherness and being set apart becomes especially profound when we talk about God. God seems to be the pinnacle of otherness because there is nothing like him. He is a being all different altogether. And by necessity, he is set apart from his creation. It's what theologians will often call the creator-creature distinction. It's to protect us from thinking that God is just a bigger version of ourselves. There is no one like God, and the Bible affirms this over and over again. Isaiah 40, 25 affirms this when it says, To whom then will you compare me that I should be like him, says the Holy One. In 1 Samuel 2.2, Hannah offers a similar sentiment when she says, There is none holy like the Lord, for there is none beside you. There is no rock like our God. God is totally set apart from all creation in his greatness and in his glory. And this is part of the definition of holiness. He's set apart. He's other. But... This is not a complete definition. When the seraphim are saying, holy, 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 they're not just saying set apart, set apart, set apart. They're saying something more than that. So let's go to dimension number two. The first dimension is otherness being set apart. Second dimension is moral purity. Moral purity. And again, 2 Timothy 2.21, the verse we just referenced a second ago, puts this dimension forward when it says... Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel for honorable use, set apart as holy. Moral purity is vital and necessary for holiness. In order for one to be truly holy, it must be righteous. Sin and holiness do not mix, they're like oil and water. And there is no being with greater moral purity in all the universe than God. He has never sinned and he will never sin. Think about that. He has never sinned and he will never sin. He has never had even a moment of a lustful thought or a jealous thought or a conceited thought or a prideful thought. Not even for a moment. None of us will make it out of this room without having one of, having one of those thoughts tonight. And he has never, ever done it. He's never cut corners, he's never lied, he's never gossiped, he's never cheated on a test, he's never taken someone's virginity, he's never mistreated the poor and the powerless, he's never plagiarized, he's never stolen money or cheated on his taxes, he's never had a millisecond of a bad attitude. That one right there would nail me. He's never had a millisecond of a bad attitude. We cannot fathom all of that. No one is as morally pure or righteous as God. You could go so far as to say that God is set apart in his righteousness and moral purity. And then finally, this final element of the definition of holiness is maybe a little less intuitive, but I think there is truth in this. I think the third and final dimension of holiness is devotion, devotion. When the Bible labels something as holy, that thing is of course set apart, and it's of course it's morally purified, but it's also devoted to something. When God through Moses calls Israel a holy nation in Exodus 19.6, he means that they are set apart from all the other nations, that they'll be morally purer than the rest of the surrounding nations by following the law that God will soon deliver to them. But he also means that as a holy nation, they are to be devoted to him. The holy temples referred to by the Bible, whether the temples of the old made out of stone or our bodies made out of flesh and blood are set apart for God, meant to be morally purified, sanctified, and devoted to God. And you could go down a list of all of the things that are labeled as holy in the Bible and all of them are devoted to something, namely, God. Okay, but you say, okay, I'm tracking with that. But when the Bible calls God holy, what is God devoted to? You know, there's nothing greater than God for him to be devoted to, so what is he devoted to? What's himself? God is devoted to himself. And if that sounds conceited, what you have to remember is, and this is gonna come up a lot in Isaiah, God is the only being who, whose pursuit of his own glory is not selfish. God is the only being whose pursuit of his own glory is not selfish. Now, why would that be? Logically, this makes sense. If God is a perfect being, he must love what is perfect, worship what is perfect, and be devoted to what is perfect. Well, the only perfect thing in the universe is himself. So if he puts anything else first above his own glory, he ceases to be God because he's putting something imperfect ahead of the perfect. Does that make sense? So God must be devoted to himself and to his own glory first above all. And he will, again, in Isaiah, use this all the time. He will say, for my name's sake, for my sake, for the sake of my own glory, I did this. Isaiah 48 is filled with this. God is devoted to God above all else. So, now that we have defined holiness, this idea of set-apartness, otherness, moral purity and righteousness and devotion, now that we've defined that, we can think about what the angels are saying, the seraphim are saying, this holy God, he is the essence of holiness. He is the holy one over all. And this holiness meant that they could not even look upon him. This holiness, he is so set apart, so righteous, so devoted to the perfection of himself. No one is like him. And in this holiness, he is this blazing, fire of purity and love and justice and all of the things that we would say to to describe God. And it is more than we can possibly fathom. And because of his holiness, because of his greatness, his bigness, his otherness, the seraphim are proclaiming his glory and not even looking him in the face. And it reminds me of this incredible quote from The Lion, Witch, and the Wardrobe, from C.S. Lewis. And in this book, a little girl named Susan is asking about Aslan, this great lion in the, in, the, in the story. And she says, Aslan is a lion, the lion, the great lion. Oh, says Susan, I thought he was like a man. Is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. To which Mr. Beaver replies, safe? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. That's what it's like with God. That's why those seraphim were covering their eyes. That's why Isaiah is just immediately bowing down, is because there's nothing that is safe about God. But he is good. He is the king. And if you are under the misconception that a relationship with the Lord is safe, I want to go ahead and burst that bubble. Because nothing he will call you to will be safe in an earthly sense. In one sense, you could say, sure, it is safe. Because God has has promised to care for us, promised to provide for us. But in the moment when he is pushing you out into your greatest fear to serve him, it's not going to feel safe. He is the holy God of the universe. And we have to recognize that. And so what I want to do for the rest of our time as we've talked about the holiness of God, I want to spend a little time talking about our response to the holiness of God. What happens when we experience the holiness of God and how do we respond to it? I think few books get at what it's like to experience the holiness of God um, better than the book Till We Have Faces by C.S. Lewis. Um, honestly, in my judgment, it is the best novel he ever wrote. And he, he actually says this himself. Till We Have Faces is phenomenal. Um, it is an amazing book. I think it was even the last novel he published. and He wrote it with his wife, Joy. And in this book... Uh, you see one of the clearest pictures of the holiness of God and experiencing the holiness of God that I have ever seen. And throughout the book, there's this main character, a queen named Orwell, and she's searching for her lost sister Psyche. It's kind of a retelling of a Greek myth. And so Orwell finds Psyche at one point earlier in the book, but all Psyche her sister can talk about is the greatness and beauty of a God who is now her ultimate love. Psyche has given her life in love to this God. And Orwell is honestly kind of hurt because she thought, Psyche, we're sisters. You know, we're best friends. How could you love anything else more than me? And yet Psyche, because she is so in love with this God, goes back to invest her life in him and follow him. And many years go by, and will says, I want to see my sister again. I want to see Psyche again. And so she searches far and wide And finally, she finds her sister, and she is overjoyed. She, I mean, just, she's never felt happiness like this. And this is how it describes that scene, when she encounters her sister again. Orwell says, joy silenced me. And I thought I had now come to the highest and the utmost fullness of being which the human soul can contain. But now, what was this? You have seen the torches grow pale when the men open the shutters and the broad summer morning shines in on a feasting hall? So now, suddenly, from a strange look in Psyche's face, I I could see that she knew something she had not spoken of, or from a glorious and awful deepening of the blue sky above us, or from a deep breath like a sigh uttered all around us by invisible lips, or from a deep doubtful quaking and, uh, and surmise in my own heart, I knew that all of this had only been a preparation. Some far greater matter was upon us. So here she is. She's, she's seeing her sister. She doesn't think she could experience any greater emotion or joy or depth of feeling. And all of a sudden, something else is appearing. Something else is coming in. She's like, what is this? And suddenly she realizes there's something even greater than the joy of seeing her sister. The voices spoke again, but not loud this time. They were awed and trembled. They said, he is coming. They said, the God is coming into this house. The God comes to judge Orwell. And if Psyche had not held me by the hand, I should have sunk down. She brought me now to the very edge of the pool. The air was going brighter and brighter about us as if something had been set on fire. Each breath I drew in let in to me new terror, new joy, new overwhelming sweetness. I was pierced through and through with all the arrows of it. I was being unmade. I was no one but that's little to say. Rather, Psyche herself, in a manner, was no one. I loved her as much as I once would have thought it impossible to love anyone. and would have died any death for her. And yet, it was not, not now, she that really counted. Or if she counted, and oh, gloriously she did, it was for another's sake, for his sake, The earth and stars and sun and all that was and will be existed for his sake. And he was coming. The most dreadful, most beautiful, the only dread and beauty there is was coming. That scene is just a small taste of a description of what Isaiah would have been encountering we we cannot even put to words a true description of what it is like to encounter the true holiness of God but everything that orwell is describing there has some sense of truth to what isaiah would have been feeling when we encounter god's holiness it changes everything So what I want us to do, just to get your head in this space as we talk about a response to holiness, is I want you to talk about this question at your tables. What are some of your most profound encounters with God? Where were you? What happened? And what emotions did the encounter leave you with? How did it change you? So thinking about a profound encounter you would have with God. Maybe it was a time of worship at Summerfest. Maybe it was a conversation with a friend. Maybe it was a sermon you listened to or some moment in nature. Wherever it was, whatever it was, Think about that, talk about that, think about the emotions it left in you, talk about that at your tables, and then we will continue on to talk, to talk about how we respond to God's holiness. For me, I share a bunch, but just a couple I think that are significant from my journey would be, I can remember I had gone through an apologetics crisis in college where I had walked away from the faith for a short period of time and then come back and it was just this incredibly intense time of spiritual searching And on the back end, where I felt like I believed God existed, I believed I could trust his word, I started just kind of trying to read more about who God is and theology and just read the Bible more deeply. And I will never forget, it was the fall of 2016, and over the course of about a month or two, I read through the book of Romans and my devotions, just really slow, and I read through a book called The Pleasures of God and reading them kind of in tandem during my devotions. And I remember there was two spots I would read. I would either read in kind of this um, armchair in the living room of the house I was at or uh, at the quad at Mizzou. And I can remember just there being moments where it was like, the argument of that book is a little bit of what I mentioned earlier, that God is first for his glory above all else, which means he's the one at the center of the gospel. And I would realized that for most of my life, I put myself at the center this thought of like well of course God was going to die for me be almost as if like yeah I'm good enough in myself and I never would have said it that way but my whole view of God and myself got turned upside down in the best kind of way. I would say another significant one for me was I got a calling to ministry um, at about midnight in conference room A at Lakeview Lodge at Summerfest sitting there with Brad Daniel I wasn't even supposed to be out of my room, but I was just kind of praying through some things and wrestling with some things, and rather than get on to me, Brad could tell I was in some deep thought, and he sits down next to me, and at first he's like four or five chairs over, and then he's like three chairs over, and then two, and then finally next to me, and he pauses and he says, Caleb, I, I don't know why, but I just feel like God is telling me that I think you're called to ministry, and at that time, public speaking was my biggest fear in the whole world. And I literally laughed out loud at him and said, no, I'm going to do civil engineering at Mizzou. And I, I just thought it was the stupidest thing I'd ever heard. Fast forward about four years later, uh, sophomore year of college at uh, Summerfest. I'm a leader. Almost same point in camp. It's midnight. Oh, this time I wouldn't get in trouble for being out of my room because I'm a leader. And same deal. Brad sees I'm thinking. And kind of praying, and then he, five chairs over, then four, then three, then two, then one. And I had been wrestling intensely with this call to ministry, because I had been running the other direction, and yet I could not escape the thought. There were people that had would never say things like this to me, but were like, have you ever thought about ministry? I mean, it was just coming up everywhere. And finally Brad again says, Caleb, I think you're called to ministry. And I remember having just this, I just, it broke me, because it was like, God is so much bigger than I ever thought. I can't. I cannot outrun him. And it just. It was. It was like a defining moment for me, and just encountering him and realizing my sin and running the other direction. It was just this incredible experience. And so, as you as you think about your significant encounters with God, what you probably remember about a number of them is that it reminded you just how big God is, and how small you are. And that's a key part of what happens when we experience the holiness of God and respond to the holiness of God. And I think if we were to sum up, you could say more things, but I think if we were to sum up three primary things about our response to the holiness of God, I would say when we encounter the holiness of God, we we respond by seeing our sin, by being humbled, and getting clarity on our calling. By seeing our sin, being humbled, and getting clarity on our calling. And so I just want to talk about each of those as we think about responding to the holiness of God in light of what Isaiah has encountered. When it comes to an encounter with the holiness of God, it shows us our sin. Isaiah 6.5, where Isaiah sees the greatness of God and the seraphim and everything, and he says, Woe is me, for I am a man. I am ruined, and I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, because my eyes have seen the King, the Lord, of armies, Isaiah's first words when he encounters the glory and holiness of God is not to defend himself, not do anything else. It is to say, woe is me compared to you. I am nothing. And I think for a lot of us, that's what happens. When you became a Christian, it may have felt different if you became a Christian at age five than it would have if you became a Christian at age 25. But when you became a Christian, part of what happened is you encountered the holiness of God and it showed you your sin, that God is righteous and you are not, that you have fallen short of His, His law and His commands, and only He can do anything ultimately about it for you. And you have to give your life to Him. And so when you encounter the holiness of God, it shows you your sin. And then kind of related to this, it humbles you. When you see your own sin, that's humbling. You know, we go throughout a lot of our lives, for most of us, we are just blind to the depths of our sin we just don't have a true grasp on how broken and sinful we are we make excuses for ourselves or to be honest most of the time when we sin we don't even notice it we have so many sins of thought and omission that we don't even realize we're sinning when we actually are but when we encounter god and his holiness and we are shown our sin it humbles us and this happens to isaiah as well previously if we were to read through chapter 5 especially. Kind of the bulk of chapter 5 you would see that it was easy for isaiah to call out everyone else's sin he goes through what biblical scholars call the six woes of isaiah where he's calling out sins of different kinds so chapter 5 verse 8 he says woe to those who add house to house and join field to field until there's no more room and you are left alone in the land Verse 11, he says, Woe to those who rise early in the morning and pursue of beer, who linger in the evening inflamed by wine. Verse 18, woe to those who drag iniquity with cords of deceit and pull sin along with cart ropes. Verse 20, woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who substitute darkness for light and light for darkness, who substitute bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Verse 21, woe to those who consider themselves wise and judge themselves clever." And verse 22, woe to those who are heroes at drinking wine, who are champions at pouring beer, who acquit the guilty for a bribe and, de- and deprive the innocent of justice. You see what he's doing? He's calling out the sin of others. Woe to, you, woe to you, woe to you, woe to you, woe to those who do this. He's calling out everyone's sin. But then notice what he does in chapter 6, verse 5. You could call this the seventh woe. Woe is not you, woe is me for I am ruined because I am a man of unclean lips and live among a people of unclean lips and because my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of armies. Catch that? When he realizes his sin, he's not pointing fingers at anyone else. Even if the things he's pointing out are are correct, he, he goes back at himself. And one of the things I would argue is that there's a major danger for many of us who who have grown up in the church, who have grown up like Christians, who have fairly kind of outwardly pure domesticated lives. It is so easy for us to sit around and point fingers at everyone else. And the best solution to that is an encounter with the holiness of God. If you find that most of what you do in a sermon or most of what you do in church or your everyday life or your community group is just judge people about their sins, even if it sounds really pious, You know, maybe the way you share it in a prayer request, you're trying to pray for them, but it's really just gossip. If if, if that's where your mindset really is, I would encourage you that you need an encounter with the holiness of God. You have to be able to look at your sin. Not because we're minimizing the the sin and brokenness in the rest of the world, but if we never take time to work through our, our own sin, we are nothing but hypocrites. And God will judge us for that. So, This encounter with the holiness of God is a profoundly humbling experience. And what I would argue is, if you don't truly have a grasp on your sin, have an understanding of your sin, we will never understand our total brokenness, but we can understand some measure of the brokenness we have. If you don't understand that, you can't properly understand yourself or God. You have to have some knowledge of your brokenness and your smallness in order to understand God's bigness and vice versa. John Calvin, in the very beginning of one of the most significant theological works ever written, the Institutes of the Christian Religion, this is how he starts. This is how he starts the whole thing. Our wisdom, insofar as it ought to be deemed true and solid wisdom, consists almost entirely of two parts, the knowledge of God and the knowledge of ourselves. And it is evident that man never attains a true self-knowledge until he has previously contemplated the face of God and come down after such a contemplation to look at himself. See what he's saying? He's saying that until we have an understanding of the greatness and the holiness of God, we can never truly understand ourselves. And until we have an understanding of our sin and our smallness, we we won't understand the greatness of God. So if you never consistently encounter God and his holiness, you begin to get an elevated view of yourself. And It's a dangerous thing as a Christian because you can have an encounter when you're much younger and then you can kind of just go through the motions for years and slowly God gets smaller in your life. And yet you would say, I've been going to church for years. We have to fight it. You have to fight it. You have to search and fight and claw for encounters with the holiness of God. Read your Bible. Ask for God to help you in worship. Ask for God to show you your sin and help you be sanctified and and grow and strive after him. Be in an accountability group. One of the best ways to keep yourself humble is have people around you that are willing to be honest with you about the ways you screw up. And also to encourage you. I can tell you that like the advisory team here, Nick and Jay and Jane and Kelly... I mean, even, <clears throat> even on yesterday's phone call, uh, we had a call just to talk through ministry and, and kind of the, you know, what's coming up next in the ministry. And there were a few things that were said in love that just say, hey, Caleb, I think you need to think about this. Or here's a way I think you can improve. And for me, it was convicting. And even one of the things, I kind of started to push back a little bit. And then after the call, kind of caught myself and was like, I shouldn't have done that. They were right. You, we have to be able to take a look at our sin. It is not fun, but we cannot have a proper grasp of God unless we do. We will never understand the beauty of grace unless we do. And then finally, encountering the holiness of God gives us clarity on our calling. It gives us clarity on our calling. Maybe our calling is to simply recognize who God is and to follow him. Maybe our calling is to turn from a besetting sin. Maybe our calling is to do something for God's sake like a career or missions or something like that. Or maybe some combination of those things. It doesn't have to be, you know, we're not going to be called to be a prophet for God. That's not our calling in this life. But God is calling us to something, both in this season and for the, the, the majority of our life as Christians. And when we encounter God, we can't help but want to do something for him. When you have a true encounter with God, you can't help but want to do something for him. If you've ever been to Passion, kind of those big young adult Christian conferences, it's one of the reasons they often spend time talking about missions and ministry and other things, is because they know when young adults have a profound encounter with God, their first step is, I want to do something. You cannot have a profound encounter with God without being led to do something. And here's what I would tell you. If you feel like you have a profound encounter with God and you walk away and there's no motivation to do anything, I think it was just your emotions firing a little bit. Or you were too focused on yourself in worship. I do that all the time. When you have a profound encounter with God, you cannot help but obey His call on your life. And so I don't know what your calling is. I don't know what it looks like. But I can tell you that when you have that encounter with God, It will will push you to do that. Again, it may be something as simple as like, God, I, I need to fight this besetting sin. I cannot just kill this addiction to pornography. Or I'm stuck in this web of lies here. Or maybe it's something to the effect of, God, I know I need to get out of this relationship. I'm dating someone that's not a Christian. It's pulling me away from your call. And I need to make this decision. I have a hard conversation. Or maybe it's you need to, to be honest with a friend about the, the way you've been talking with them behind their back and say, you know what, I, I, in order to follow God's call, I need to be a witness to Him. I need to be honest about what's going on. It could be taking a job or going to Bible college or uh, do whatever. There's so many different callings, but we should be thinking, God, what are you calling me to? He never calls us just to become Christians and do nothing but kind of enjoy coffee and Bible studies and do nothing else. He's always calling us. To something, And when he calls us to something, it is not easy. So you just need to know that right now. As you wrestle through a call, following a call to God is not easy. Notice what it says for the rest of the chapter, starting in Isaiah 6, verses 8, and we're going to go to 13. Then I, This is after his encounter with God. Then I heard the voice of the Lord asking, Who will I send? Who will go for us? And I said, Here I am. Send me. And he replied, This is God speaking. Go, say to these people, keep listening but do not understand. Keep looking but do not perceive. Make the minds of these people dull. Deafen the ears, blind their eyes. Otherwise they might see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their minds and turn back and be healed. And then I said, until when, Lord? And he replied, Until cities lie in ruins without inhabitants, until houses are without people, the land is ruined and desolate, and the Lord drives the people far away, leaving the great emptiness of the land. Though a tenth will remain in the land, it will be burned again. Like the tebranth or the oak that leaves a stump when felled, the holy seed is in the stump. Now imagine going to Passion Conference and they get up and they have this powerful evangelistic deal and they're trying to get you to be a missionary or something like that. And then they say, oh, by the way, no one's going to listen to you. The whole place is going to be desolate. That's not really an inspiring talk. You know, I don't think David Platt's going to have 500 people assigned to to missionaries after that. But that's what happens here. And this is a reminder for us that when God calls us to something, it will not always be easy. I, again, just thinking about my own story, when I first got the call to ministry, public, public speaking was my biggest fear in the world. I wanted to run the other direction. That was the hardest thing, one of the hardest things I ever did, was facing that fear time and time and time again. And I, I just thank God for the grace of the people that had to listen to me face that fear <laughs> for many, many times. It was hard. I was having to crucify my sinful self in, in wanting to run the other way. And for many of you, there will be hard things. You will have to give up something when you follow God. Whether it's that relationship you know you shouldn't be in. Whether it's the porn addiction you're trying to hide. Whether it is a, a misuse of your time because video games keep you away from being able to have time to do anything. Or that club or sport or thing that you're a part of that keeps you from being able to serve in church or join a community group. Whatever it is, you will have to sacrifice something. You will have to sacrifice something when you follow God's call. And for some, God's calling on their lives will lead them to death and persecution, like in the early church. It's happening in our day. Their ministry and calling in the early church was grueling, but God used it in ways beyond their wildest imagination. God used their obedience in the early church to grow the church, which was once this tiny, weak movement into a force that has changed the world by proclaiming the gospel of Jesus. And as one early church father, Tertullian, said, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. Because of their sacrifice, they were willing to follow the holy God to whatever end. God used it in ways that they could not have fathomed, and it was all worth it. Whatever you give up to follow God's call, he will repay it a hundred times in full in glory. It will all be worth it, all of it. And when we encounter God in his holiness, We can't help but want to follow him anywhere. Anywhere. And I hope many of you have had that experience. I know I have. Of when you encounter him, you say, God, I I don't care what you ask me to do. I'm going to do it because I love you more than I could ever possibly express. So what is your calling right now in this season? What is God calling you to? Again, whether it's vocational ministry, whether it's a particular job, whether it's having a certain ministry at work by ministering to your coworkers, whether it's leading a community group for the first time or going on a mission trip or serving or sharing the gospel with a family member or friend or doing the work that needs to be done to kill that, that besetting sin, whatever it is, think about the calling God is putting on your life right now. The doors that just keep on opening, those thoughts that you just can't shake, that you sense the Holy Spirit is putting on your heart. I want you to think about that for a second. I want you to talk about that at your table, share what you feel comfortable sharing, and then we will continue on to close out our message. All right, for the sake of time, we're going to bring this to a close. But if I realize is not enough time, so I encourage you, if you're going out afterwards, whether Old Chicago or 54th Street or wherever people are going, this could be a great conversation. You know, Because the beauty of this community is that we can encourage one another to continue to follow God's calling. Um, I was just sharing with Jay that God's kind of put a particular kind of calling in this season for me on ways I, I can better serve him. And Jay lives out this better than almost anyone I know. And so every time I sit here and talk to Jay and I ask him about his week, I'm like, gosh, dang it, God. You're... Okay, that's my reminder. Y- you all can be a reminder for one another in this. And so this community is important for that. Here's how I want us to close, is I want us to close with this thought. You know, we, we began by talking about how names and events often are better markers of time than just pure numerical dates. And we talked about how this great king Uzziah died and it's this phenomenal marker. And yet in this year, Isaiah sees the real king. And I would argue that there is another date that will forever mark history. And in fact, it serves as the foundation and turning point of the very way we track time. And this event marked the death of a king, a king who offered a sacrifice to God, and as a result, his skin was disfigured, and his body was scarred. But this time, God did not detest that sacrifice. No, God loved it, because this time, it was someone that was not only a king, he was a prophet and a priest all in one and this sacrifice was not just meant to atone for one man's sin but the whole sin of the world this sacrifice was made by one man who was both a priest and a king and he was even a prophet like isaiah except a far greater prophet but greatest of all we don't simply remember this event because this king died we remember it because he rose again from the dead and this king jesus has risen and is ruling and he is the holy god of the universe and even the demons recognize this in jesus ministry mark 1 23 to 24 and immediately there was a synagogue and a man with an unclean spirit and he cried out what have you to do with us jesus of nazareth have you come to destroy us i know who you are the holy one of god when Isaiah sees God, he was changed. And when we see Jesus, the holy God of all, we can be changed. And when we see Jesus, we actually see the holy God. John 14, verses 8 to 9, says Jesus, speaking to Philip, says this, Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. And Jesus says to him, have I been with you so long, and yet you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. And when we see Jesus in all of his holiness like Isaiah we are transformed. 2 Corinthians tells us that we all with unveiled faces are looking as in a mirror at the glory of the Lord and are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory for God who said let sh- light excuse me for God who said let light shine out of darkness has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of God's glory in the face of Jesus Christ. When we have an encounter with Jesus, when we see him by faith, by the help of the Holy Spirit, we are transformed. We have our callings clarified. We are reminded of our sin. We're humbled, and we cannot help but follow Jesus wherever he calls us. And if you're someone here tonight who is like, I am ready, God. Send me. I don't know what my calling is, but I want you to send me. He has already answered your prayer. He always answers that prayer. And Above all else, here is where he's calling you. Here is where he is sending you. He doesn't just give you a commission. He gives you the greatest commission. He says, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to him. And go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. You were never alone in God's calling. And we are all called to proclaim his glory, his holiness to all the nations. And it will require something of us. But together as this community, as the community of the church and the universal church as a whole, we can do amazing things for God. Pushing one another away from sin and pushing each other toward the likeness of Jesus. And we all get to mirror something of the holiness of God for the world to see. My dream for us is that when we walk out of 20-somethings, we'd be a little bit like Moses after he encounters the holiness and glory of God. You know, his face is shining. And people kind of hardly look at him because he looks so much like the holy God in that moment. Would that we, in our time together, in our worship together, our time in the Word together, our encouragement for one another together, would that we become a whole lot more like Jesus. Ultimately, that's what you were predestined to do, to be conformed to the image of God's Son. So... Whatever it looks like, my prayer is that you would follow God's calling and He would give you a, an, just an amazing encounter with His holiness. Let's pray. God, we thank you so much that you, above all else, are the one who rules and reigns in the universe. God, we thank you for your glory, for your holiness. We thank you for putting a calling on our lives. Would you remind us just how small we are in the best kind of way. The universe does not rest upon our shoulders, it rests upon yours. Our sin is not anymore upon our shoulders, it is upon your son's. He took it all. God, would you remind us of our sin, would you remind us of our Savior, and would you help us submit to your calling forever and ever. Help us encourage one another to submit to a calling, to make hard decisions, to give up big things because you are worth it. And God, I pray that this community would radically come to look more and more like you, the holy God of all, as we spend time together. We pray all of this in Jesus' mighty and holy name. Amen.